0: To go from a practice to a profession, the field of thought leadership needs a number of things. One of them is rigorous academic research, studies that further the practice and help students prepare for careers in thought leadership. Will Harvey is a professor of leadership at the University of Bristol in England, and he's an international research fellow at Oxford University's Center for Corporate Reputation. Will has been researching, teaching, and consulting on corporate reputation, leadership, and managing people. He caught my attention in 2020 when he and his three co-authors published a research paper on thought leadership. Their research was based in part on interviews with more than a dozen marketing and other heads in 12 professional services firms, ranging from a consultancy with more than 500,000 employees to an architecture firm with 500 employees. The tensions of defining and developing thought leadership within knowledge-intensive firms was the first academic research I had seen on the topic of thought leadership. My hope is that this is just the first of a number of academic studies on thought leadership. I spoke with Will Harvey recently about their research. What drew he and his co-authors to the topic? What they felt were the most important findings? The marketplace conversations that the research has generated with them? what new research he believes the university world should conduct on the topic of thought leadership and whether universities have done enough to prepare students for careers in thought leadership. Anyone who would love to see universities do more research on thought leadership and see more university graduates come prepared for this profession, I think you will find my conversation with Will Harvey to be illuminating. It's wonderful to see Uh, the university world, having discovered this this undiscovered tropical island of thought leadership. So I really look forward to talking to you about your research and your outlook on the field of thought leadership and where it goes, especially from a university, from an academic standpoint.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Bob, and it's a
0: pleasure. Looking forward to our discussions. So, Will, um, you published your study in 2020, you and your three co-authors, what was it that captured your interest and in those of your co-authors in this topic of, of thought leadership? What motivated you to say, we should research this?
1: I think there's quite a few different but really interesting things going on in business and society. I think we've got a real problem with misinformation and disinformation. And sometimes you know, that comes under the umbrella of, of fake news. We've obviously, alongside that, had a proliferation of influencers, predominantly influencers on social media platforms. Um, we've also had, to some extent, the democratization of information, where more people are able to sort of generate content themselves and, and obviously to disseminate that to large audiences very quickly. And I think the combination of those factors, uh, in my view, means that uh, there's a lot of confusion. Uh, generally amongst the public, and sometimes uh, that saturation of information warps people's sense of reality, Um, whether that's elections, geopolitics, vaccines, the economy. I think you could name all facets of of business, society, life, where a lot of that confusion comes in. And and that was, I think, the starting point in the context where my co-authors and I Felt this is an area that we we want to engage with, and this sort of concept of thought leadership, I think, is a tremendous opportunity, either as an individual or as a business, to really tell others in your own way who we are, what we stand for, and
0: why what we do is important
1: to to others.
0: And so, what time, what year are we talking about? When you, I know you published a paper in 2020, but but how far back did the this exploration begin? What what year?
1: Yeah, that would probably be about twenty sixteen, and uh, Alexandra, uh, who was uh, one of our co-authors, and, and great about this project is it's a mixture of you know academics and people actually practicing uh, thought leadership, as Alexandra was. So this was part of her uh, dissertation that she was doing with Vince, one of our co-authors, and so in a way, I think the celebration of this is that's where a practitioner. Is almost sort of throwing in the face to, to the academic, like, hey, this is a subject that that we really need to engage with. And it was a great dissertation, and that sort of accelerated a conversation after the dissertation around how do we get this out to a wider audience? So Alexandra should should definitely take the credit for that.
0: What did you and your, your co-researchers, your co-authors find to be the biggest challenges in researching this topic? We'll get to the key findings in a, in a, in a little bit, but what were the key obstacles to actually shedding new light on this topic, which you guys certainly did?
1: I think the dearth of information on thought leadership within the academic realm. um, I I would say, I hope um, with modesty that I think this is the first academic study that has specifically looked at thought leadership. And so the challenge there often is persuading editors and reviewers of a journal that, look, this is genuinely a new field, and not only a new field, but but one that warrants careful uh, attention. And uh, I think it's been warranted. I mean, if you look at the, the article, which your, your listeners will be able to access for free, it's the Journal of Knowledge Management. It, it's just received uh, the, the best paper for that journal for the year, and it's just been nominated for uh, an additional award. So I think I'm not saying that because, you know, oh, well done to, to us, but I think it says something that there's something about this topic that people recognize as important. But that was also the challenge at the beginning, Bob, because we were trying to persuade reviewers and editors, look, this is something that's really relevant to business and society and something that we as an academic field need to engage with and start a conversation.
0: Do you or or your co-authors have any thoughts about why the topic was ignored by academia for so many years? I think one
1: of the challenges with academia is uh, disciplinary domains, where often you're talking about similar phenomena, but using different kinds of language. And, And so a lot of my academic background has looked, for instance, at migration and it, you'll be amazed how people from sociology to business to journalism to sociology that they're, they're talking about the same thing but different language and i think that's what's going on here that uh, there's certainly been a lot of work done on let's say knowledge management um management ideas uh business gurus Um, So these kind of splintered fields, but nothing really under the sort of domain of sort of um, thought leadership. And so I think that it's a terminology sometimes that's a problem. But in this case, I think the term thought leadership has really been sort of driven by practitioners. And to be honest, when we started this project, somewhat embarrassingly, you know, you feel like you're so far behind the curve because business is way ahead in terms of engaging with this concept and people talking about it. And there's nothing in the academic domain whatsoever. So, so that, again, reinforced to us, this is something that we we need to, to get to grips with.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if we will would have seen the same pattern in a field, say, like project management, which has been around for, I think, 60 some odd years. You know, when was it finally discovered by academia as a legitimate field of worthy of inquiry versus how much businesses have been talking about project management for decades. I wonder if we'd see, you know, a similar uh, a similar pattern here. And any thoughts on that? I don't know if you've followed project management as a field or a profession, but.
1: Absolutely. I think definitely with project management, I'm already seeing it, to be honest, Bob, in other areas like the digital economy. Suddenly, this is becoming you know, very popular. Data analytics is a, you know, a huge field now, not only in terms of research in business schools, but also uh, in terms of its teaching domain. Um, uh, sustainability, of course, has been around in, in scientific fields for a long time. But you know, get, you're getting people working in areas like Biodiversity economics, sustainable economics, we you talk about things like the triple bottom line. So I think there's lots of shifts going on, both within business schools, but more broadly within universities, which is sort of mapping on to huge demand from different stakeholders uh, across business, society, politics and, and everywhere. So yeah, these are just a few, I think, of many trends that we'll see uh, over the next years and decades.
0: Yeah, and these uh, make for, um, and we'll talk about this later as well, these make for these nascent trends that, say, the, you know, business practitioners have picked up on before the academic world has discovered them. They make for good opportunities for the university world, right, to to begin researching and preparing students, you know, for these jobs, et cetera, and so on. But we'll, we'll talk about that later. I wanted to ask you about... Um, what seemed to me to be the most important findings of your book, which were around the three tensions um, in thought leadership, as you describe them, you know, the, the individual, uh, the organizational, uh, and the industry, and then you had further kind of sub-tensions within the, the three. Let's start with the individual tension, especially the one that I thought, um, and I'm looking at it right now, how do people, how do individuals balance Using thought leadership that they get from working with their clients, with um, the restriction, as you say, of client confidentiality. How did that tension among individuals play out for you, and did you see that as the the biggest one among the 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 individual tensions of thought leadership?
1: Yeah, that that was a, you know a really significant one because of course. Clients now of all kinds of firms, particularly, but not limited to professional service firms, they're they're often quite experienced buyers. And so, you know, whereas in the early stages of management consulting, you know, clients are sort of desperate for insight, you know, from management consultants. Now, you often find a situation where clients have often worked themselves in professional service firms. So they've been sort of both sides um, of the equation. And I think what that means is when you have experienced professionals and clients having conversations, particularly at a strategic level, you get a lot of interesting insight in terms of different domains, whether it's leadership, whether it's strategy, operations, cost cutting, all these kind of main domains uh, in in business and management. But as, but as you alluded to in, in one of the tensions that we found is that that does create some, some difficulties because on the one hand, these great insights are ones that you feel brilliant. We, we, we need to use those as subsequent conversations with our clients, either directly or, you know, we, we want to sort of advertise or market that to them through different materials that, that we use. But at the same time, you've got to be extremely careful, of course, because um, if you're too revealing in some of those insights, then you you breach your that, that confidentiality you have with your client. And so the seduction might be that, yeah, I want to do that because it's going to open up a whole new business domain for us. But one of the key things with professional service firms and that consultant-client relationship is the sort of the trust aspect because of information asymmetry where you know, you often, sometimes, as a provider, have more information than than the buyer. And the moment you sort of breach that trust, and that trust gets broken because it gets passed on to other people in terms of that you're not trustworthy, that can be a real problem. And so, I think that's that's the sort of the kinds of tensions, Bob, that we were sort of finding in that context.
0: And in the you 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 spoke with. 12 professional services firms, architecture, consulting, law, uh, and others. Did you, of course, without mentioning names of those firms, did any of them seem to deal with that tension better, Uh, the tension of balancing client confidentiality at the individual level versus, you know, we really want to say something new, new and important and have it backed by evidence. You know the evidence that we use because our client actually implemented what we said and and got results.
1: I wouldn't say it was differentiated by sector. I would say it was probably differentiated by reputation, uh, mm-hmm. meaning that you know often those firms that had the best reputation were were often the ones that set you know a very high ethical code of conduct in terms of the way they work and how they get that balance and i think incidentally that that's why some of the leading professional service firms often find themselves receiving a lot of criticism in the media when something does go wrong because the bar that has been set for them over many years and decades you know is very high both in terms of the quality of what they the insight they provide but also in terms of that confidentiality and relationship and i think that would be true across all those sectors that you mentioned within professional service firms but as you know and this is this tension at the individual level to the firm level it only takes one partner or senior partner to to sort of seriously mess things up for people to start to think that there may be sort of some kind of uh, cultural issue going on where it's not just about one person but there's a wider kind of um thing going on within the firm, which is why often when there is sort of misconduct, you'll, you'll see the firms come out very quickly and sort of sever ties with, with the individual because they really want to signal that actually that completely goes against our, our code of conduct and our standards.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about the attention that uh, drew my greatest attention at the organizational level, which was the, because I've seen this play out in many ways, how organizations can decide, well, there are a couple that stood out in, under organizational, which is how organizations decide how much bot leadership to, I'll put it, outsource versus insource. Tell us more about that that tension and, and how you think it should be managed.
1: Yeah, and, and this is some earlier work that Vince Mitchell, one of our co-authors, and I have done was a, just generally around reputation within professional service firms. And what we found is that actually professional service firms a lot of them don't have a great deal of experience with high quality thought leadership at least historically uh, recently you've seen a lot of activity of course the exemplar would be would be you know mckinsey and company and, and the mckinsey quarterly outlet would be you know a, a great example of how that has been built up over a long period of time and is well respected and read by the kinds of people that they want uh, to read it um so what we generally found was that there was a big scrambling around. How, how do we, you know, how do we create similar high quality content without just looking like we're sort of kind of ripping off what, what McKinsey have already done, but to a lower level? And, and I think that sort of gets to the heart of the the issue. I think the preference would be let's, if we can, let's do it in-house. But frankly, a lot of these people, and you know, often it is the partners and senior partners that are that are driving a, a lot of these discussions. They don't have training, they don't have insight around. Okay, well, how do we actually disseminate that in the most meaningful way? You know, that starts to broach into sort of other sort of disciplinary domains, and that's where the sort of the outsourcing comes in because you start to you need, you need to get communication experts and journalists. You need to get um, cartoonists, artists, other kinds of people with different multimedia uh, kinds of skills, not necessarily to kind of generate the content because the content is already in-house, but it's about, well, how do you package that in a way that's really going to be accessible to the kinds of people that they, they want to consume that kind of content?
0: That's right. And those, in my experience, those skills are are, you know they're less common in in professional services firms or other business to business firms that are that are trying to to um, be seen as thought leaders in their domains communication skills the uh and in your research i think you mentioned tacit knowledge just just trying to unearth try to codify knowledge that's in the heads of some expert at a law firm or a bunch of experts at a law firm or consulting firm or architecture firm or, you know, you fill in the blank firm, you know, these individuals may have done something for years, but they, they have never really written it down, and the skills in writing, taking tacit knowledge and making it explicit so that the average executive, the average person can understand those skills, in my experience, are rare, still rare in the marketplace.
1: I I agree. And I think, you know, testament to you with with your book, you know, that you you have you have done exactly that, in my opinion, in in the context of thought leadership, you know, codifying a lot of practice, a lot of insight that is quite hard to do. And I think one of the great skills of people that do thought leadership well is not not always just the sort of how do you disseminate, but it's actually how do you create that content? In the first place and part of that creation is, is a co-creation between you as a provider with the client and the way you ask questions the way you interview the way you make that person or people feel at ease can have a tremendous capacity to unearth information in ways that can be extremely insightful conversely you know closed types of questions making people feel uncomfortable telling people what to do, you know, I'm this sort of powerful consultant, do this, do that. You, you will miss out on all kinds of tacit information that could be useful in a lot of unforeseen ways.
0: Yeah, it's a delicate dance between the expert and the person who's trying to help the expert codify his or her ideas. It's a very delicate dance. And um, and it takes a skilled and, and, and experienced person to do that, by the way, it's a great opportunity for uh, <laughs> for uh, skills in in college. I, I believe you know if, if if you can you know if you can pump out graduates who have those skills, a lot of professional services firms will line up looking looking for graduates with these skills. Okay, on the industry level, um, one of the uh, tensions that that I noted the most was. And I think I think this applies at the organization, your organization level as well, is how do you uh, balance sharing proprietary knowledge, you know, and the risk of your competitors basically saying, well, we do that too. We've changed the label of that, you know, we've changed a bunch of words, but it's the same wine in a different bottle. I, I've seen that play out at the organizational level more more than the industry level where, you know. Your your competitor is thirty years ago. Well, competitors are saying they do business reengineering too. And even though the firm I worked at we were the we were the pioneers, dozens of consulting firms way before the web was really ubiquitous. We're saying they they do business reengineering too, and that's played out many times with many other big concepts, whether from consulting firms, law firms, right you 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 do thought leadership and you market it well and your competitors can easily you know appear to mimic so what about that tension and how big a tension did you find that at the industry level and did you find it at the organizational level as well
1: yeah definitely at both levels uh, and i think a, an important reminder sometimes is that you can be within an industry and in fierce competition as an organization with a competitor. But you all have a vested interest to safeguard the reputation of the industry. And you, know, you and I could list a whole bunch of industries that have had tarnished reputation, some because of the types of activity they do, and I'm not going to mention those here, but let, let's just say that uh, you know you've got an industry like consulting, which has got, you know, a fairly good reputation. You know, sometimes it divides people, but it's got fairly good. What, what you don't want is you and your competitors sort of fighting it out. And that can actually undermine the reputation of the the whole industry. And then that that undermines everyone. So 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 there's definitely that kind of industry level sort of. How do you find that balance between, right, we're competing with, with one another, but we also have, you know, a duty to protect the reputation of, of, of the whole sector. But of course, absolutely, um, that there is a sort of a, a proprietary aspect to this. And particularly when you're trying to enter into new markets, as well as, you know, you're fighting in established markets you know, if if you suddenly see, you know, a new opportunity emerging, let's, let's say analytics, or climate change, or reporting on climate change, or, um, you know, strategy at a leadership level, uh, you've got to be able to position yourself in a distinct way. But you've also got to recognise that, you know, there's going to be quite a bit of overlap between what you do, and, you know, what others, your, your competitors are doing. And I, I think in most cases, that That's fair game. But you've got to reveal something in in the thought leadership space, because if if you're obsessed by protecting your proprietary, then you've got nothing to say in the public domain, and you purely rely on sort of informal networks. But equally, so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, of course, is you just put everything out there. And then, of course, you run the risk that people take everything and repackage it for their own purposes and that would undermine your business model as well so it's that sort of middle ground I think Bob, where you've got to sort of provide some meaningful insight and I would emphasize the word meaningful because if it's superficial you might as well not bother it needs to be many meaningful but equally not too much that you know it then gives the opportunity for others to take
0: did any of the 12 12- Uh, professional services firms, and you spoke with some pretty big ones. I think one was a consulting firm with 500,000 plus people, employees. Did any of them say anything along the following lines? Yes, our competitor, yes, we know when we produce really good stuff, our competitors can quickly say, well, we do this too, and they can publish their own white papers and all that stuff. Did, did, Did any of those 12 say, Anything along the lines of the real advantage is not, is not just marketing, it's it's actually scaling up our expertise to deliver yep. it better than our competition. If we should expect them to copy us if if it if if our stuff really resonates in the marketplace, but our ultimate advantage is we can do this work better than others because. We have superior internal training and development, superior methodology development. They can say they do it, but our competitors can say they do it, but they will not, unless they invest you know, in the what I call the supply side of thought leadership, they're still not going to be able to do it as well as us. So, so that, that, that would be their ultimate competitive advantage is to deliver the expertise better. Did any of the 12 companies you talked to talk about that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And, and they, they, they not only talked about it, but you, we could also corroborate those statements by then looking at kind of the content and the delivery by speaking to clients uh, and also public information. One of the ultimate reasons why a lot of people were interested in thought leadership as well is it's an opportunity for you to corroborate your claims that you're making to clients you know let's say you're competing with a set of firms during the beauty contest and you know what one way of saying not not just saying look we we're serious about strategy or, or, or strategic thinking is to sort of back it up with sort of other types of content that you're doing now if you're being cited in the new york times or the financial times or you know you're being quoted here there and everywhere on a specific topic then it, it's sort of, it's reputation borrowing, you know, it's, it's reinforcing that verbal claim or the written claim in your documentation. So um, absolutely, you know, yes, people, you know, to some extent were concerned, but they did feel that if, if they genuinely had tangible evidence behind it, then, then that spoke for itself. But, but equally, I, I had lots of cynical conversations with people where they said yeah this firm claims they do that but actually when you scratch beneath the surface there's no thought leadership that kind of backs that up they're doing it because they're trying to pivot into this new market which they see as exciting but they're yet to actually um, evidence that and clients going back to that point about clients being discerning you know they they pick up on that pretty quickly because word gets around who genuinely has the expertise in certain areas
0: Right. And so the competition competitor number one, they may have one or two people who can do this half decently. But our firm, we have dozens, you know, we have hundreds. And they've done this for 10 years. And so anybody can say they can do this, but when you kind of scratch the surface, not everybody can do it as well as as we can. That's the ultimate advantage is can you deliver? Can you deliver? Your expertise at a superior level of quality and quantity. Indeed,
1: and often remember, clients nowadays can be quite demanding in terms of who is on the composition of the team that is providing the service, because they know, for instance, that often you know the the, the partner or the senior partner gets rolled out for the you know the presentations and everything. But they'll also say, what well, are you get what's your involvement in the project? We want to and yes, we we'll go with you, but this is the team we want because we know who the experts are. and if you're just going to put a load of junior colleagues who don't have that expertise, then forget it. you know we'll we'll go with capacitytor B.
0: so did you hear that from some of the 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 twelve uh, people uh, in in these big professional services firms that they, that some of their clients in effect have become much more sophisticated buyers. Definitely. Their services sophisticated users, so to say, of thought leadership. Definitely. They're not just lulled by the Harvard Business Review
1: exactly article
0: yep. or the whatever the equivalent is in the in the legal profession.
1: That absolutely came through. And you know, of course, you know, if you've got you know a very strong, reputable um Brand, you know, let, let's say you know you are a McKinsey, in, you know, in consulting, or you're a J.P. Morgan in investment banking, then inevitably, you know, that gets you to stage one because the reputation gets you to the shortlist. But clients, you know, know that you may have this fantastic reputation as a firm, but if they've got a particular problem that they need. You know, they often want that solving unless it is a highly politicized kind of project where the CEO of the client may want to revert to being able to say, you know, we used this reputable firm as a way of sort of protecting themselves from a decision. But other than those very politicized kinds of projects, you know, most cases, you know, they're looking for, you know, the most tailored team to their their specific need. And, And so that's why you're absolutely right that they're 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 advanced buyers. They understand the market quite well.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about what's happened since the publication of the paper two years ago. The, the I would love to know what kind of conversations you've been in in the world of academia, uh, especially, I know um know, um, have you gotten reactions from, without naming other professors saying, still level, why are you researching that topic? <laughs> or have there been more, oh, wow, we, we totally missed this topic, you know. Great to have some new research. More needs to be done. Uh, you know, what kind what kind of conversations have you found yourself in in the in the world of colleges and universities?
1: I would say it's been received pretty well. So, what's interesting um, in business schools, we have a few major accreditation bodies. Um, one that's very big in in, in the United States, at AACSB, and and one that's very big in Europe called Equus. And in both cases, uh, we were invited to write articles for those major accreditation bodies around thought leadership, specifically in universities and business schools. We also got invited by um, the Times Higher Education, which in in the United Kingdom is the major newspaper for higher education kinds of content. Um, So I think that is quite a good sign that institutionally, let's say, both from accrediting bodies journalism um but also from you know the universities themselves That this is something that we need to to, to grapple with and, and that was sort of alongside you know other sorts of interests particularly i would say from pr marketing agencies are quite interested in in this space so and i think as i alluded to before you know the paper's been <clears throat> cited quite a few times and downloaded quite a lot so i think we're getting some traction but as you know that the wheels in academia can sometimes roll a bit slower than in business so so i think it's just the start
0: so how will you know when the study of thought leadership in universities has finally arrived or the 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 field has finally arrived what what would be the signs in 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 your mind that this is you know, a well-recognized field of exploration and teaching, of course?
1: I think it would require sort of a triad of research, teaching, and engagement and impact. So research would be that there starts to get some significant traction around publications in, in this sort of thought leadership space. Um, the teaching would be right from everything from undergraduates who are straight out of high school, right the way up to senior executives, you know, who are at C-suite level or just short of C-suite level, being taught, you know, the latest insights around thought leadership from an from an evidence-based perspective. And then the third aspect is sort of the engagement and the impact, which is sort of what you and I are doing now, which is sort of It's not just research, it's not just the teaching in the classroom, but it's also that these conversations are happening that sort of cut across, you know, universities and colleges into sort of the business domain as well. So, you know, people like me have started to be invited to, to give talks in businesses, to attend, you know, industry conferences. You know to write reports or co-write these reports, then I think that suggests that there's sort of an appetite. but I think all three of those things, bob, need to happen in tandem, but I think we're at a at least within universities we're at a very nascent
0: stage despite a lot of interest at the, at this stage so what do you think would would accelerate that? Is it um you know a big article in Harvard Business Review or MIT Sloan Management Review or another, you know, highly prestigious academic journal that's written for both the academics and the practitioners. Uh, you know, what 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 would you think ignite this as a field of study that many universities finally take up?
1: Uh, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. That that would be you know a, an ideal outcome. Like yeah, as you say, if you could. Publish an article and possibly even publish it, you know, co-authored between you know a professor and let's say you know head of talent management for you know a, a real leading, prominent organization on thought leadership. I think that could really gain a lot of traction at at sort of the right level, both university level as well as sort of at at the business level. I, I think that would be you know a really important uh, step forward. I think. Related to that, gaining more research in this field, I think would would be important, and also positioning thought leadership in relation to other fields within business, but also more broadly, the social sciences to sort of make a case for well why why should we actually pursue thought leadership more? Uh, what what's this adding that you know the field of I don't know knowledge management, communication studies, journalism, all these other sort of allied fields that you know are not the same but they're they're linked you know what would be what would be the added value and I, I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel but what i do think is essential is that we equip the next generation of students professionals to understand what's going on because it sort of brings us full circle to the start of our conversation we've got a real challenge on our hands in my opinion at a societal level, and that's across, across, and beyond both countries that, that you and I live in and work in, to, to you know across the globe. And so, thought leadership, or what I call a so high-quality thought leadership, I think is going to play a really important role alongside other things. You know, working with you know technology, working with organisations, working with regulators, to sort of redress. I think this issue that we've got around let's just call it fake news for simplicity.
0: Yeah, you know, I think similarly that thought leadership needs to be seen as a noble profession uh, of revealing the truth about problems in the world whether they're problems for businesses or societal problems, you know, homelessness, you know, pervasive homelessness in the world, climate change, etc. the fake news problem. <laughs> but you know I look at the leadership as a noble profession, and you know hope it doesn't become seen as well, it's just you know it's just another word for propaganda or so uh, you know i'm i'm that's why I would love to see more universities take this up as a field to be researched and uh, if worthy of of further investigation of of turning into curriculum and turning into. Careers so that uh, graduates can see job opportunities and be better prepared for them whether they go to work at a professional services firm of any type or a software company uh, or any organization that believes they have an opportunity to to gain mind share you know and market share if they can shed light on a very complex, Issue that their products and or services help address. So on that last thing, what do you th- the the profession of thought leadership? I don't know if you've thought this far ahead, but do you think it's limited, more or less limited to for students uh, for professional services firms jobs there, or do you think it, it extends beyond pro- the world of professional services? Uh,
1: I think it cuts across every facet of of society, and it, I've been reflecting on this, and it's a slightly provocative thought. But you know, if, if you think about two extreme scenarios in the world, you know, one extreme is that you know you live in a country which you and I don't live in, but let's assume that you live in a country where information is suppressed and it's controlled, and um, only certain types of information get disseminated. You and I know that that's that's a very dangerous type of environment, and that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, though we need to recognize is also potentially dangerous, which is unfettered information not edited, completely sort of uh, saturating people's minds. there's so many different sources of information. people can edit information, they can subvert it, they can um, you know create fake imagery, fake videos, and so I think this is a huge challenge in terms of what we're talking about, in terms of thought leadership, because we, in my opinion, we need to get to a situation where thought leadership is, and this is sort of goes to the sort of thrust of the paper that in, in our definition, which we define as, you know, knowledge from a trusted, eminent and authoritative source that is actionable and provides valuable
0: solutions. Yeah, I really like yeah. that definition, by the way.
1: Good. I, I mean, and we try to sort of bring that from all that literature, you know, um, and predominantly uh, uh, from the practitioner, but also the academic field. And I think you know, if we can apply thought leadership in that way, which is, you know, evidence based, it's coming from trusted sources, but it's not just about the input. It's also about the process of how it's created. And it's about how we disseminate it to others. If we can get those three stages done well, then I think we can start to really attack some of the big issues where people often maliciously, but often sometimes inadvertently as well, share information, which can have very damaging implications for people, society, you know, and the planet that we live on as well
0: absolutely and 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 the damaging you know impacts um surely precede the era of social media the rise of the 21st century but in my view it's just been accelerated by social media just talk about um word of mouth uh you know going viral in seconds as opposed to months or years it's just so easy much easier to corrupt the minds of anyone about nearly anything today than it was 35 years ago when I got into this field. So I
1: agree, and I think there is, going back to your question around where next, I think there is something that we need to do to engage with students around this, not just around the risks and the opportunities of thought leadership, because it it is both, But but also around getting insight from them, this goes back to this sort of co-creation. How can we effectively engage with the next generations, you know, through technologies, through how they behave and interact? Because if we just think that it's a one-way street where, you know, if we just follow this kind of linear model, people will follow and you know they will conform, then I think we're misguided. We we need to understand how people engage with knowledge, how people uh, gain insight. And I think a trick, I think, would be to to try and involve students in that process as early as possible, because they will be an important part of the solution.
0: Yeah. Well, Will, this is uh, this has been great. Uh, I really have enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you will continue your, your research of the field of thought leadership. Uh, it's so desperately needed in the marketplace. And I know a lot of our clients would would, would love to see more uh, people graduate from universities who are, you know, ready for the jobs that are already there, for jobs for which they these people have to be developed or hired from journalism, 10 years of journalism or market research or PR, you know, they would love to see. Uh, some ready-made graduates st- step into some pretty, pretty exciting roles.
1: So, well, thank you so much. It's Been a pleasure. Really enjoyed our conversation, and and uh, looking forward to working with you and others in this very important
0: domain. A- absolutely. It's heartening to see the practice of thought leadership being explored by universities as a field worthy of exploration, something I hadn't seen in my 35 years of being in the thought leadership profession. And I sincerely hope that Will and other professors will conduct additional research on thought leadership over this decade to improve our collective knowledge on the topic and of course, and ultimately its practice. Will Harvey and I share a common goal and that's of introducing college students to the field of thought leadership and preparing them for what we both believe will be an increasing number of jobs, well-paying jobs, at both for-profit and nonprofit organizations around the world. Now, in our next episode of Everything Thought Leadership, my colleague Alan Alper will be interviewing Paul Rohrig. Paul is a thought leadership research professional who launched a think tank at IT Services' powerhouse cognizant technology solutions 10 years ago. It's a think tank that studies the future of work. Paul left Cognizant in 2021 after nearly 12 years at the firm. Today, he is Chief Strategy and Marketing Officer at a software engineering firm called Ascendion. You can look for Alan's interview with Paul Roerig in November.